Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and today I'm joined by a psychotherapist and broadcaster. She started by volunteering with the Samaritans in the 80s and has just reached number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list with her latest book. It's called The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read and its author and my guest is Philippa Perry. Philippa, hello. Hello. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. This is where we invite great people such as yourself to come in here and uh, I guess unlock the creativity within you in objects. Oh, In objects. objects. And you've brought these objects with you today. I'm very, very happy to say. I was a little bit confused by the first object, the, the wooden spoon, because wooden spoon I always thought to be a kind of symbol of discipline, harsh discipline. Let, let me just try this one out. Oh, I see what Ow. you mean. Well, actually, for me, it's a symbol of love. Because, as you can see from this spoon, it's actually worn down into a little stub. And that's because this spoon has been passed through the generations. My, my husband calls it generations of stirrers. <laughs> and it's just worn down to nothing. And I was uh, taught to cook by my two maiden aunts. And they, probably because they weren't parents, had so much time for me. And so even if they had something to do, like cooking to, to feed people, they would take me step by step and they would wait for me as I stood on a stool and stirred things over the stove or made batter or whatever it was with the, this wooden spoon. And I know how long it takes to wear down a wooden spoon by sheer use. I like to think that this is love passed through the generations as personified in a spoon. That sounds really idyllic, being with your aunts and them focusing that much on you, giving you that much time. You've talked about your own childhood as being middle class, comfortable. My parents were good people. And like a lot of good parents and good people, they didn't realise that it was important for me to have all my feelings, not just the ones that they felt were convenient for them. So I was not allowed to be angry. I was not allowed to be sad. And so these feelings got repressed and there was nowhere for them to go. And I wasn't sure how to process them or I was a bad person for having them. And in my practice as a psychotherapist, I saw this again and again, like people not knowing how to deal and cope with their feelings because their parents hadn't wanted them to have them. It's not that they were bad parents. Of course, a lot of people that come to psychotherapy do have toxic parents, but the majority don't. They have well-meaning parents. So I wrote a book for well-meaning parents because if you're not well-meaning, you're probably not going to read a parenting book. You find quite understandably the words good and bad problematic. Yeah, because you can have the best intentions in the world and we all know that best intentions are what we need when it comes to parenting and yet because we don't want our kid to be, say, sad, why would we? We push them away when they're sad or behaving inconveniently rather than finding out what their inconvenient behaviour might mean. What we all want in life, whether we're babies, children or adults, are moments of connection with other humans. And if we push our kid away because we don't like the feelings they're having, we are denying ourselves and them a moment to connect with them. And so this book is about how to have more moments of connection, how to feel closer, how to be more cooperative and, and less combative or competitive. 
How do you think your own parents would have dealt with reading this book? That they'd see that they had hope for having a better relationship now because it's never too late to put something that hasn't been working right. One of the paths we go down as parents quite often is that of being right. We have this belief that unless we are right, our children will feel insecure or they won't be able to trust us. But they have their own instincts. So when we insist on being right way long after when it's pretty obvious we're not right, we're messing with their instincts. So we do have good instincts and we need someone to validate them. In the course of writing this book, Philippa, did it lead to you re-evaluating how you yourself had parented? Well, I hope I do that quite a lot of the time anyway. I've only got one kid and she's an adult now, but you don't suddenly stop being a parent just because your kid has passed 18. What you That's a job think, forever, isn't it? Well, what you think of them affects them in their adulthood. And if they don't want it to, they have to work very, very hard at disengaging. A parent's good opinion of their child means such a lot to that child, even when that child's an adult, or maybe especially when that child's an adult. So you never really stop. Your second object is a book, and it's a book that's very important to you, Compassionate Child Guide by Robert Firestone. Tell me about the effect this book had on you. Well, I read this book when I was pregnant. I went to foils and I wanted something about the psychological side of rearing children. Fairstone's book is for professionals and parents. The thing about Fairstone's book is that he's got some great ideas, but he's not a writer. So the book is a bit all over the place, but it had some absolute gems in it. And I found it very affecting when I read it when I was pregnant. Were you concerned, Philippa, that you may revisit how your parents taught you about feelings? Or were you sure that you wouldn't be that person, that you would, whoever you brought into the world, you would always allow them to express their feelings? I had no idea. I wanted all the help I could get. One of the things in this book, The Compassionate Child Rearing by Fairstone, in the prologue of that book is an essay by R.D. Lang, And in this essay, he talks about the word I heard for the first time, diaphobia, which is fear of dialogue, which is fear of being affected or influenced by another. When I was training to be a psychotherapist, I learned about this thing called mutual impact. If you're going to have an influence on anyone, you have to let them have an influence on you. You have to be affected by them. And I think because we might have been brought up by diaphobics, we don't allow our children to impact upon us or we're scared of allowing them to impact upon us. And if you think about the relationships in your life that you find the most frustrating, it's the ones where you don't seem to be able to make any difference because it's a bit like being blanked in a way, like what's the point of me if I can't impact on this situation? And I don't like the idea that children get to feel like they make no difference. I I don't think it's good for them. So I took this idea and and ran with it a bit. Diaphobia in parents. I thought it was really fascinating in the book about asking us to confront ourselves 
yeah. in order to be better parents yeah. and to try and understand what it is that is frustrating us and relating that to how we felt as children, which is yeah. a kind of tough journey to go on, isn't it? Yeah, it is It is quite tough, but it'll be even tougher for the kids if you don't. And you're the adult here. Basically, the book is sort yourself out, sort your environment out, and then think about being a parent. Because unwittingly or wittingly, we bring so much of ourselves to bear on our children. And we might think we're having no effect on them, but we surely do. And they tend to do what we do and they follow our style rather than do what we tell them to do. So, for example, if we are stubborn and inflexible with our children as we tell them what they must do, they tend to be stubborn and inflexible in return. And then we get into coercive cycles of trying to control each other, which is not a relationship. So... It's important to look at your style. Well, in adults, it would be regarded as abusive if you yeah. were trying to constantly coerce yeah. each other. I, I, said to, I said to a friend once, you're manipulating your kid. I'm not sure that's a great idea. And she said to me, well, how else do I get them to do what I want? <laughs> oh, OK, I could think about a right book. <laughs> but patience seems to be something that... I think we need we to know. slow all our interactions right down because we're at a much faster pace than the kid. Whereas the kid's thought processes and their motor skills, you know, tying up shoelaces, they're much slower than ours. And I think it's lovely if we give them enough time to get their head around stuff and their fingers around stuff rather than make them feel clumsy and inadequate because we're rushing them. Let's look at your uh, third Object, which is remote control ah, yes. that you have here. I love my telly. I do love my telly. You do love your telly. But, of course, we are now, and I notice this with myself and my wife, um, spend time staring at a screen, sometimes when the kids are there. You know, my kids mm. have mentioned many times, are you on Twitter again? Oh. When I'm with them. Uh-huh. You know, well, they're I'm, getting a bit annoyed, aren't they? Well, they, and rightly so. Yeah, it's uh, good Good feedback, kids. Great feedback, <laughs> great feedback. But the media and the distractions that we have, tell me why a remote control Well, is I here. love being distracted. I love switching off in front of Countdown or Pointless. It's my joy, my little joy in life. Uh, but this screen problem... It's not so much the television or the computer game that's the problem. It's what they're not doing when they're on it. So they're not feeling the existential angst of being bored from which comes creativity. They're not chatting. They're not running about outside, burning off their burgers. They're not talking to each other necessarily. It limits their chances for developing in relationship with other things. So I'm allowed a telly because I'm an adult. I'm allowed a phone because I'm an adult. However, if I had a young kid, I would not be allowed my phone because I'd be using the phone because I want connection and contact. That's why I pick up my phone. Uh, ostensibly, I'm, going, I'm doing my work emails, but actually I'm enjoying the contact those work emails are giving me. I'm, I'm enjoying myself, really. 
And if my child sees me getting contact and connection through a screen, that's what they'll want, contact and connection through a screen. As much as I'm enjoying the contact through the screen, my kid is craving that contact with me times 10. And so that's why I owe it to them to put the phone down and give them their sense of connection and contact through interaction with me because they develop in relationship with you. You wouldn't want your kid to develop in relationship with angry birds. You want them to develop with something a lot more complex than that, another human being, preferably you. It's quite interesting you say that because I was talking to a friend of mine about there's a game called Fortnite, which a lot of kids are playing. And he talked about it being social currency. So me not allowing him to play it is in some way depriving him of an ability to be able to connect with other children when he goes to school and that's what they're talking about and he will feel excluded by that. And I kind of got that. Yeah, I mean, it's I complex, isn't it? I yeah. think he's got a good point. Mm. And so showing I'm not diaphobic, I go, mm, let's not ban them all together. Yeah. Extremes, polarities. If you've got one of those going, it's never usually a good thing. So... We don't want our kids addicted to screens, but nor do we want them to be social freaks because they don't know what they are. So uh, what is this fortnight? I want to have a go. Maybe I will enjoy it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting you say that because someone who's a computer gaming expert and also a cybersecurity was saying that the best thing that you can do in order to ration your kids from playing games is to play with them. Yeah, and they feel they find it so valuable that's what I loved about the telly I used to watch it with my daughter so I got moments of connection while you both got the joke or whatever's on the screen you know you look at each other so it's a social thing I still really love watching telly with my daughter now now that she's an adult yeah and you are very successful at what you do and again this is about parents kind of judging ourselves about spending time with your children but also wanting to have your own life and your career and the fulfillment that comes with that which makes you a better parent because there's no resentment there that balance is very difficult isn't it it's a lot easier when both partners in a relationship take responsibility for it when both parents work i think that it's lovely if each parent has also special connection time with the kid. If you've got four kids, I think they each need some one-on-one time with a parent at some point, even if it's just 10 minutes at bedtime or something. But we argue, don't we, that we're busier now, that it's so difficult. Well, it is difficult. My generation, because we had it slightly easier, aren't spoiling our children if we give them a house deposit if we give them if you're lucky enough to be able to do that yeah, yeah or if we give them paid babysitting i think they need a lot more help than than my generation had because i think it's everything's a bit more squeezed and one thing my generation might have as we're going into retirement is time and the time that a loving relative can pour into a child is different from the time a paid helper puts into a child. A paid helper can be very loving, but they might suddenly be whisked off the scene. And that's traumatising for a child too. You know, when relationships are ended suddenly because nanny no longer works for you or something. 
Well, that goes back to the difference your aunts made in your life. Yeah. You know, yeah. that contribution that they made. Well, yeah, they made an enormous contribution. You know, they were unpaid child carers, but I never saw them as that. They were my loving aunts, yeah. Do you think we're past the idea that psychotherapy, books such as these, are just what your parents' generation may have said? You know, my parents' generation may have said, which is, oh, this is all kind of hippie, psycho babble. It's, you, you've just got to tell kids what to do and then they'll do it. Do you think we're beyond that? I have had criticism like that, but not from anyone. have? Yeah, but not from anyone who's actually right. read it. Right. People that have actually read it go, oh, yeah, I can see this actually makes sense. This is like people who want films banned that they've never watched. Yeah. Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> well, somebody said, I think there's enough molly coddling. They've got to toughen up these kids. I go, I agree with you. And in order to make our children emotionally resilient, here are a few steps we can take. But are we regressing in the sense that certain sections of the media or politicians will now talk about Generation Snowflake. And Generation Snowflake is the equivalent of molly coddling. Some people need to make other people bad in order for themselves to feel good. Here we go back it, to the first chapters. Of your yeah, book. it's the winning and losing game. So I can't win unless someone else loses. And unfortunately... People don't know they're playing this game and don't know they're playing it at the expense of their children. Yeah, because it is the anger and the resentment is there's no winners in that. No. I mean, it's quite obvious there are no yeah, winners in there that. Yeah, there aren't any winners for, for, you know, calling someone a name like a snowflake or, or whatever. The snowflake goes, yes, that's right. I am in touch with my feelings and sensitive. <laughs> And the uh, accuser goes, my point exactly. And then there's no moment of connection between the two either. What you're trying to do is build a resilience yes. in this book. It's a little bit like when, when people argue, why are you doing that for prisoners? You know, it should be, you know... There's, they should be whipped. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what, what's the point of rehabilitating them? You just want them to live in holiday camps. It's like, well, no, because they, they, they won't re-offend, which means that they won't yeah. commit criminality. Um, yeah, you. Hu making someone feel humiliated, making someone angry does not make them behave better, be they prisoners or children. I want to talk about fact tennis because, again, this comes down to, you know, the, the argument and trying to be right all the time. Yes. And making people feel better. Yes. Fact tennis is essentially about point scoring, isn't it? Well, it, what it is essentially about, but it's not acknowledged, is it's about how we feel. So, for instance, I feel that you can leave the washing up until the end of the day. You feel that it should be done straight away. Now, you can give me a fact about it's unhygienic. Yes, the, the germs I, will build up. and Yeah, blah, blah, blah. OK. So you are 15, love, at the moment, but I'm coming right back in with a big volley and I'm going to say... It's quicker and saves time if I do it all in one go at the end of the day. Okay, all okay, right. Okay, 15, 15 all. 15 all. Right, well, let's go for my 30, 15. I'll okay. say, if you leave the food on there, it will harden. And by the end of the day, it'll be much more difficult for you to wash those plates. I don't think it will when I throw in a dishwasher tab into the sink. Dissolves all the dirt instantly. 30 all. <laughs> But if you leave them there in the sink and wait till the end of the day, 
There will be flies all around and, and it may stink and that stink may not go away. And also it's messy. And if you've got a messy oh, environment, oh, you'll have whammy. a messy D- mind. OK, I've been absolutely thrashed now with right. the double volley there. <laughs> and so you might have won that argument because I've got nothing left to say, right? <laughs> and so I'm feeling resentful. And you're feeling smug. Yeah. Have we had a moment of connection? No. No, we have not. (laughs) But if we do it again and we talk about our feelings rather than facts, such as like, so tell me how you feel when you see a pile of washing up now. I feel as though the environment in our kitchen is just... No, talk about you. Talk about you, how you personally feel. Come on, you can do it. It me up. Just, I it makes feel angry. It. It, feels, it feels, yeah, it make, makes me feel like you don't care oh, about how I feel. Oh, I don't want you to feel that. I care. Come on, I'll wash you dry. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to feel angry. So, I want you to feel loved and cared for. Right. <laughs> so we've come together there. Yeah, we have. You know, that, of course, is the micro yeah, example. That's, that's a micro example. But, but we play fact tennis all the time rather than finding out how we each feel. I had quite hard work there trying to find out how you actually felt. You wanted to go right back into the environment of yeah. the kitchen rather yeah. than, I feel so unhappy when I see a pile of washing up and despondent and angry. And of course I don't. So I, <laughs> I, I feel fine about it. So I think, oh, you poor thing, you know. I interviewed Brett Anderson from Suede and he's become a parent relatively recently and later on in yeah. in, uh, in age. And uh, and he said, I'm just not going to spend my life arguing with my kids about Chris, eating crisps on the sofa or not. I just don't kind of care enough. Well, that's, that's because he doesn't care. Yeah. But, you know, his partner might really care when she gets some crisps stuck to her thighs, when she sits on the sofa in a skirt. She and, wasn't and, on the interview. I should have asked him. Yeah, asked yeah asked and so that. you then might have, you know, different feelings about this. My way of parenting is just about acknowledging feelings. It's not about being lax. No. It just means being kind. But it is so difficult to unpick who we are as parents because of how we were parented. I mean, that's essentially what, certainly, I mean, what you're trying to get across is that, is to how to unpick When that. you feel a charged emotion, like you feel furious because your kid has thrown food on the floor or something like that, if you just respond to that rather than reflect, you'll shout at the kid, and then your kid will start to associate meal times with anger, maybe develop some other horrible problems in relation to that, okay? But if you think, but I'm still angry, what's that about? A client of mine, I was doing this very little problem with them, and they said, well, my grandfather was French, and he'd wrap our knuckles with a knife if we dropped anything. So she had fear associated with spilt food. So she wants to avoid feeling that fear. So she'd yell. So rather than feel fear and vulnerability, which is what spilt food brought up in her because of the knuckle wrapping, she'd just shout. She'd just be the grandfather again. So we tend to pass on what was done to us. So if we were shouted at, we tend to become shouters and we don't have to. We decide we're not going to. And then in the stress of the moment, we find ourselves doing it. So what I say in the book 
is that when you notice a feeling you have in response to your child feels very like a very charged emotion, whatever it is, stop, think, see where that feeling belongs. You'll find it belongs in the past. Deal with it in the past. Leave it in the past and be in the present with your kid. So often we're not reacting to the present and what's happening with our kid now which is that they're going through a developmental stage whereby their hand-mouth coordination isn't that great and they miss sometimes, we're reacting to having our knuckles wrapped in the past. OK, time for your last object. They're a very small but sturdy-looking pair of walking boots. Now, why these, Philippa? These are a pair of brown walking boots that look just like adult hiking boots in polished brown leather with a thick sole, except for they're very tiny because they're aged four. Me and my husband like to go for walks across the downs up and down Dale. This was so our little child could come with us. And what was interesting about the boots is that they made her feet too hot. And she did come up and down Dale, but she'd, she'd do it barefoot. She didn't want to wear the boots. And, of course, after I'd invested, God knows what they were, £40 in a pair of walking boots. They're beautiful boots. Look at them, hardly used. But she was fine walking on sheep poo and rabbit poo and the odd bramble. And I wouldn't prefer to do that. I prefer to wear shoes. But I think we must learn that what makes us happy as adults won't necessarily make our child happy. She took to the downs like a Maasai warrior, yeah. not, not like a middle-class woman <laughs> going on a walk. Sounds like Mowgli. Yeah. She wears <laughs> shoes now. Well, that's good. I mean, in adult life, that, I think she's going to need that. That brings me to something else. Go what works with the present and don't worry about the future. So if your five-year-old will only go on a long walk with bare feet, just go with it. Just go with it. That's what makes her happy. Why have a battle about the boots? And you'll probably find, you know, when they're pounding the streets of broken glass or whatever, they will start to wear shoes. <laughs> don't worry about it. These things happen in their own good time. You don't have to rush them into doing things like wearing shoes if they don't want to wear them. Just like bedtimes, if your child will only go to sleep on top of your stomach, don't worry about it. That's what the telly remote control's for. Watch the telly while your kid goes to sleep on you and then put them down someone once they're asleep. They say pick your battles. My take from this book is that you shouldn't really be having the battles at all, but, it, but also my take from the book is it inevitable that you will have some. Sometimes they will really have a total meltdown because you won't let them jump into the penguin pool at the zoo. <laughs> Total meltdown. And the worst thing... We Is this can... from personal recollection? Yes. It was me that wanted to go in there. No. And the worst thing you can do is say, you can't do that because it's against the rules because reasoning doesn't help. Go with the feelings. So you go, you're so disappointed. You can't go in the pool. You poor thing. Don't argue with a kid about what they feel. You're not going to let them swing with the penguins. It's not allowed. We know that. We just have to feel sorry for them because they're not allowed to swim with the penguins. They'll internalise that soothing when you can't do something that you really want to do. You can soothe yourself if you've been soothed in that situation. There's a lovely story in the book uh, about your daughter's um, interaction with an ant. Yes. Yeah. Let's have a listen to that extract from the audiobook now. 
Once, when my daughter Flo was three years old, she wanted to walk the short way to the shops and not go in her pushchair, so I left the pushchair at home. On the way back, she just stopped and sat down on someone's front step. My instinct was to think, oh no, because in my mind, I was more in the future than the present. I was already putting away the shopping so I could relax and rest. It wasn't in my plan to rest halfway home, but Flo was resting now. Then I realised that it didn't matter when we got home. I put down the bags and crouched down beside her. Flo was looking at an ant following a crack in the pavement. Sometimes it disappeared into the crack and then it got out again. I watched with her. An elderly man came up to us and said to me, Is she winning? I knew what he meant straight away. He meant in the battle of wills between parent and child, was she getting her way at my expense? I knew this battle of old. My parents believed in it to the extent that they thought if any child got too much of what they wanted, whatever it was, it would be bad for them. But you and your child are on the same side. You both want to feel content rather than frustrated. You both want to get along and behave well. The old man smiled knowingly down on us. He was only trying to be friendly, so I didn't argue. I didn't say something like, we are in a relationship, not a battle. I just said, we're watching an ant and smiled back at him. That was the book you wish your parents had read and your children would be glad that you did, written and read by my guest, Philippa Perry. It's at points a very difficult book to read, but ultimately it's a very optimistic book because it shows and proves to you, and you met plenty of examples through the book, that change is possible at any stage. A relationship is not set in stone. And this is about having the best possible relationship with your kids for you and for them. It's not child-centric. It's not adult-centric. It's relationship-centric. And what a child needs above all things is a great relationship with their parent. So true. What's next for you? I mean, this book, of course, just out and congratulations. It's a bestseller. So that's good. Happy days. I write books and I also make radio and television programmes. You do. And I have just made a radio programme called When Parents Separate, available on iPlayer. I've also just completing an episode for Victorian Sensations, which is a documentary on BBC Four about the Victorian mind. So I had I had a break from childcare, as we all need to do from time to time, and got into the Victorians and how they felt about modern things like radio waves and the ether and how it changed the way they're seeing the world and their thinking. So I had great fun delving into all of that. So is this about technological advances? It's about how technological advances affected your mind if you're a late Victorian in the 1890s. And, of course, you can immediately see parallels about our technical advances and how that's affecting our minds now. And that will be on BBC Four quite shortly. Philippa, thank you for hanging out with us today. Thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder that if you haven't already done so, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the podcatchers such as uh, iTunes, Acast, 
or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. We're also available on your Alexa-enabled device. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin podcast. We'd love to know what you think. Available for the first time in audio are the collected essays, speeches and meditations from the Nobel Prize winning author Toni Morrison. This unique selection offers a glimpse into the mind of one of the most important voices in literature. If I can pluck up courage here, I would like to speak directly to the dead, the September dead, those children of ancestors born in every continent on the planet, Asia, Europe, Africa, the Americas, born of ancestors who wore kilts, obis, saris, geles, wide straw hats, yarmulkes, goatskin, wooden shoes, feathers, and cloths to cover their hair. The audiobook edition of Mouthful of Blood is available to download now.